Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell unveils his long-awaited plan to tackle the homelessness crisis. We'll take a look at what it means for the city and the region. Plus, bipartisan talks on gun control following a slew of mass shootings that have left dozens dead. Will there be room for compromise this time around? And 70 years in power. It's impossible here in the U.S., but we'll take a look at how one world leader has managed to cling to what some say is a dying institution. All of that this hour, but first, Seattle about to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to move the homeless into housing. Like many major cities, Seattle has been dealing with a crisis of the unhoused. Here, the booming tech sector, led by the explosive growth of Amazon over the last decade, has led to an influx of people, with nowhere near the number of homes and apartment buildings to support it. So this week, Mayor Bruce Harrell says he has committed to building thousands of new low-income supportive housing units. At the end of the day, we have to bring people indoors. Mayor Harrell has budgeted more than $700 million to construction of these units and other homeless services. And joining me now is John Lobertini, Northwest News reporter. And uh, you were covering this press conference. And this is something we've been waiting on from Bruce Harrell since he took office. And it was a big unveiling on Tuesday. It was. And there are a lot of tentacles there, but but it's a plan. And one of the things that the mayor talked about, he said, you know, while I was on the sidelines running for this job, I kept looking to City Hall thinking, where's the plan? Where's the plan? Well, this is very definitely a plan. It's high-tech driven. It's analytics driven. It's the kind of thing that uh, you know, the, pay, the the public can embrace once, you know, everything is laid out. And we're also seeing that there's a dashboard he's setting up at homelessness.seattle.gov. The dashboard is a place where the public can go to see how these homeless issues are being handled. It, it will tell you at any given time how many people are living on the streets. Uh, as they demonstrated this indoors before the news conference, they said, you know, on any given day right now, we've got 750 people living in tents. Uh, or 750 tents. We've got 225 RVs on the streets of Seattle. And it's the kind of thing that they plan to update every month to give some idea as to what's going on and the progress that's being made. You know, the mayor talks about building housing, but they're also acquiring housing. You know, yesterday um, he announced the purchase of a uh, dockside apartment complex in the Greenland Lake area. Uh, it's the kind of place that will provide a housing for uh, 70 people who were previously homeless, and they'll rent out a small number of those above that. But I think that that's what you're going to see maybe more than building new housing, is acquiring housing, whether it's an apartment complex, whether it's a motel or a hotel that no longer fits the neighborhood or someone's plans. This is something that Mayor Bruce Harrell ran on in 2021. He's only been in office since the first of the year, and homelessness issue number one for him why has it taken so long for him to come out with this plan because he said he had a plan on the campaign he said he was going to build 2,000 units of supportive housing basically adopting that compassion seattle platform why the lengthy delay well i mean this is a complicated problem you know there's there's no one size fits all solution here i mean you talk about you know this is the kind of thing where if the mayor comes out with a plan I think he feels like he's going to have to answer questions. And he said this a couple of times during the news conference that we wanted to be prepared. We wanted to be able to show you what it was that we were doing, what it is that we plan to do. You know, they have analytics where they have shown that, you know, these encampments, you know, this is something we all know, uh, they're dangerous. They're not sanitary. They are a threat to each other and they're a threat to the public. 
Those are the kinds of things that justify the next move and the next move and the next move. I don't think it was for lack of ideas, but I think if you present something like this, you have to be able to uh, defend it, and you have to be prepared to implement it. And neither of those things is easy. It's all very complicated stuff. And this is the city of Seattle. Where is the King County Regional Homelessness Authority in all of this? Well, uh, the city uh, is making a $118 million budget contribution to the King County Homelessness Authority. It's the new agency that's been created to tackle the homeless problem. And the feeling is that this isn't just a Seattle problem. It's a King County problem. And the mayor would like other cities to join in, cities that don't necessarily uh, subscribe to his belief on how to fix homelessness. But this is a countywide problem. And, you know, it, it, it bleeds over and moves back and forth from uh, Seattle to other communities. So the lead on this is the King County Homelessness Authority. And the city of Seattle is funding right now about 70% of that budget. So Mayor Harrell budgeted more than $700 million on his own to construction or purchase of these supportive housing units, whether it's new construction or hotels and motels. Where is that money coming from? Is it coming from the state, the local taxpayers, federal COVID relief money? Where Where is he getting the money for all this? Well, there's been a lot of discussion that, that business and the economy has done very well in Seattle. Amazon was mentioned as, as a big feeder to the uh, city coffers. That money is a jumping off point for tackling this problem. The state is getting involved for the first time. To make something like this work, is going to require money, and it's going to require follow-through. In a lot of states, California in particular, they close psychiatric hospitals with the idea that you would treat people on an outpatient basis. For decades, that didn't work, and it didn't work because there wasn't follow-through. The mayor's plan seems to have a serious commitment to follow-through. I asked him about, you know, there's a lot of talk about housing. They talk a lot about housing. What they don't talk about are the symptoms that lead you to this. Alcoholism, drug addiction, mental illness. And the, the thing that I think has gone unmentioned about this plan is that the mayor is talking about sending people out into the streets where they get to know, they get to know who you are and what your issues are, and they track them and they stay with them, they visit them, they communicate with them with the hope that one day they'll be ready to get, a, get treatment. Because a lot of times the reason you have people living on the streets and not in shelters is because they don't want to be told what to do. They want to, you know, as the saying go, addicts want to be alone with their addiction. And if they're in shelters, they can't do that. So it's a process. And he talked about getting to know people. And he said, if we'd done this 10 or 20 years ago, imagine the lives we could have changed. So money is the cornerstone of making this kind of thing happen. And right now, it would appear there's a buy-in from the county, the city, and the state to make this happen. Of course, the economy and budgets are going to determine how healthy this is in the coming years. But right now, that's the plan and the money's there. So what's the next step? Where does the mayor and the city go from here? I mentioned the Dockside apartment building they've acquired. He wants to secure 2,000 units by the end of the year where people can move, maybe transitional housing, maybe permanent housing for people who've been homeless. And it's a work in progress. You know, I don't think you can plan too far ahead when you're pursuing something like this. Right now, they've got a beat on things and they've got people out, you know, daily keeping an eye on 
available properties. You, there, there is the, the tiny homes have worked very, very well. And one of the things that the mayor's trying to do is he's trying to get community buy-in. He, and he talks about that uh, one Seattle day that they had last month where a couple thousand people turned out to help clean up neighborhoods and plant trees. That's part of the plan is to get businesses and nonprofits and people to buy in to help drive this plan. But it's a work in progress. It's, you know, you can have long range plans, but, you know, you've got to be fluid. You've got to have an ability to adjust on the fly. And a problem like this demands that because you never know what's next. All right, John Lobertini, reporter for Northwest News Radio. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. Now we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, the political fight over this homelessness problem and the progress being made in at least one Northwest city when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Sticking with the topic of homelessness, last segment we talked with John Lobertini about the nuts and bolts of the mayor's plan to address homelessness in the city of Seattle, but it is a much broader issue as he touched on. We've got the King County Regional Homeless Authority and other cities that are experiencing similar problems. So politically, how's all of this going to work out? Joining me now is political reporter for Fox 13 News here in Seattle, and that's Matt Markovich, a frequent contributor to this program. And, well, the big thing that we're hearing from Mayor Harrell is that he wants other cities to pay up. Well, the Regional Homeless Authority was supposed to support homeless outreach, shelter, housing for the entire area of King County. That includes all 39 cities. And within those 39 cities is the city of Seattle. But that homeless authority is funded by basically two entities, the city of Seattle and King County government to the tune of $227 million. That's what's being proposed next year. And 70% of that money is coming from city of Seattle, $118 million. The rest is from King County. But this authority is supposed to help the entire region, which means there are 38 other cities outside of Seattle that that homeless authority is supposed to support. And you know how much money they put into the kitty here for? Zero. Zero. So why is that? Nothing. Why are they not contributing anything to this plan? Because we've talked about this so many times. This plan is what? The regional homeless authorities are five years old and, and so far not a dime from anyone but King County and Seattle? I think conceptually it's five years old, but in reality, this is its very first year where it's actually doing something, where it's acquired a lot of contracts for homeless service providers, and it's doing all the heavy lifting for the city of Seattle and King County that they were doing separately. So that's what they're doing this year. But the other cities, basically the South Sound Cities Association, which is made up of cities like Auburn and Kent and Maple Valley and other cities in the county, they have not contributed a dime because philosophically, city councils in those areas haven't liked this idea of a regional homelessness authority and maybe not want to give up so much control. So this week, Mayor Harrell, during a governing meeting of the Regional Homeless Authority, in using his own words here, called out the, what he said, elephant in the room. And that was the smaller cities not paying into the kitty. And this comes as Mark Dones, the CEO of the Homeless Authority, proposed an, a $90 million ask for both the city and King County of a whole slew of projects that he would like to see added to next year's budget, adding you know, basically $90 million. And some of those things that we're talking about is $15 million for 12-day centers, $20 million for 345 beds of emergency, emergency housing, $20 million 
for a 55-bed high-acuity housing for people who have special needs. They need 24-7 care. And get this, Jeff, $5 million to create 130 parking spaces for people living in RVs. So I did some simple math just on that number. That's an estimated $38,461 per space. That wow. would basically equate, if you had to do it a year, $3,200 a month spread out over a whole year per space. So I went to the King County Housing Authority and the county, and they estimate that the county's 9,400 mobile home users, their space rentals are between $500 and $900 a month. And we're talking basically $3,200 for a parking space for a person who's living in their RV. Why so much? <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's why I bring this up. We don't know where these spaces are going to be. We don't even know if they're going to have sewer hookups or or what they they want to have it not all in one spot, not like a gigantic RV park for 130, be spread out over maybe five or six sites. But that's the proposal. That's just one of these budget asks that the King County Regional Homeless Authority asked for. But here's the deal: during that meeting, they passed an amendment that basically said, you know, the smaller cities, we need what they call equity. We need you guys to pay up into this thing. And it passed overwhelmingly. And part of the people who voted for it were members of the South Sound, the smaller cities. Mayor Nancy Backus from Auburn, Mayor Angela Bernie from the city of Redmond were on, are on that board who voted for that. So they're starting to get buy-in from these smaller cities. Well, that's on a vote. There was no cattle prod there. There was nothing that mandated that the cities had to start paying up. Well, could they even do amendment. that? Could the regionally homeless authority, could one form of government or one branch of government tell the other, hey, pay up because we're doing this? Well, I mean, it's kind of like arm twisting, really. There's no requirement. There's no mandate. You know, they're buying hotels and putting them in cities of federal way, uh, Kirkland, in Renton, in Redmond. And we've seen the you know, pushback are, on those, particularly in Kirkland. Yeah. So th- those are actually hotels paid for by King County to support people who are unsheltered in those communities. But those communities are not paying into this gigantic regional homeless authority, this this new bureaucratic system. So what is why so, the resistance? What don't they like about the RHA's plan? Well, I don't have a good answer for that, Jeff. The councils have decided that they like how they do things. They want to have some control of their own cities. Each city has some incremental outreach program for people who are living unsheltered in those cities, have some shelter space. But uh, the idea was that the Regional Homelessness Authority would take over all of the shelter space, all of the transitional housing, so that it's a one coordinated effort for all the cities to participate in it. But so far, it's just King County and the city of Seattle. And so I asked Mayor Harrell during his press conference when he was announcing Seattle's homelessness plan, would he ask for preferential treatment to the King County Regional Homeless Authority for Seattle homeless to go into these shelters that they're running because Seattle is basically flipping the bill. If Seattle taxpayers are paying for a hotel, basically, or rooms that are a tiny house village that people from outside of Seattle are going to, is that fair? And Mayor Harrell, even after I did a follow-up with him, he punted. He basically said, well, I wouldn't call it preferential treatment, but if you want to call it preferential treatment, use whatever word you want. And so he's just a non-committal answer. But it's clearly he's upset that the other cities aren't buying into this regional homelessness authority. And keep in mind, Jeff, this is a, a bureaucratic creation. It was not made by a vote of the people. It was the politicians, mm-hmm. the leaders in the Seattle City Council, the mayor, uh, then Jenny Durkin, King County Executive Dow Constantine, and the King County Council 
that basically created this and it's of their making. And as a result, you don't see a whole lot of buy-in from other cities, but do these other cities have the same level of problem with homeless encampments and tents and RVs that the city of Seattle does? Because certainly Seattle has been somewhat overrun. Each city will say that. I think you have to do the eye test a lot in some of these cities. I mean, you tell me, you could drive around Kirkland and Bellevue, you may see a tent or two there, but it's not nearly the eye test level that you see in the city of Seattle. They counted seven more than 700 tents in the city of Seattle, more than 200 RVs in the month of May in the city of Seattle. They actually did a count. We don't know what the counts are in these other cities, and they haven't done the one-night count or the count us in annual count of the homeless this year. And it, by the way, Jeff, they're doing that in a whole different way. Instead of just going out to count how many tents they see and then to basically say, oh, there's two people per tent even without even checking who's in the tent. But people living in cars, they kind of guesstimate. This year, they're actually going to go and find people who say they're homeless or living unsheltered. And then for participating, they're going to give them a voucher for some gift that they can get back or some, some money. And then those people who know people who are homeless are told, go give this voucher to somebody else. And then they report back. So it's kind of like a a telephone tag of people. They just, one person tells another, tells another, and tells another, and they come in for their interviews. And that's how they're going to come up with a count this year. So we're how many years now into this emergency declared by how many mayors ago? uh, It was declared by Ed Murray. So so about five, six mayors ago, as we had that quick transition with a couple of mayors in about the span of three days. Uh, (laughs) So it's been that long, and yet we're still not seeing any progress on this regional homeless authority. However, in the city of Seattle, just anecdotally talking with various people around the streets, they do seem pleased with what Bruce Harrell has been doing, cleaning up some of these major dangerous encampments. That is correct. And I can tell you something that I just saw when I was out on a story in the Lake City neighborhood. I came across city park workers, a pair of SPD officers, an outreach person with a woman, and they were dealing with a woman who's in a tent in a park in Lake City Way. And so I asked, what is this? And I said, this, this is the new find it, fix it response team. So what Mayor Harrell was talking about is how they're going to respond to complaints by people who say, hey, there's someone living in this park, and they're going to respond right away. I actually saw that. Someone had complained about a person setting up a tent in this park, and they were out getting that person's shelter, removing her and her tent, no problem, very peacefully. And they were going, I asked him, where are you going to go next? He says, well, we got a complaint of Victor Steinberg Park, which is down by the waterfront. And that's where they're going. And they're actually responding to complaints that were just filed by citizens of Seattle. Have I seen this before in, in the 10 years that you're talking about? No. And I've been covering this for quite a while. So I have to, as I saw it firsthand, that they were responding right away. And that's down at the the individual level. We've also seen at the macro level, major encampments in places like Ballard or Lower Woodlands Park. Those have also been cleaned up. That's right. And he's made a point of that. And we learned how that happens, that they have this two-month calendar. And that Tiffany Washington, Mayor Harrell's deputy mayor for homelessness, is actually the final say-so on what camps get cleared. After reviewing with stakeholders, city department heads, uh, looking at areas of camps, coming up with a criteria of priority reasons of what, why a camp should be cleared, she is the ultimate authority now on what camps get cleared and when, and they made it a priority. 
to get rid of these camps that are in city parks on sidewalks. Basically, you can do a, a, a map and start from the center of Seattle downtown and start going outward. And that's what they're that's what they're clearing first with some priority to some problem areas where there's been crime and fires. So we'll see how this uh, plays out within the city of Seattle and King County. Matt Markovich, political reporter for Fox 13 News in Seattle. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Jeff. We have to take another break. But when we come back, how is the Uvalde shooting different than Sandy Hook? Why there may be bipartisan support for reforming some of the nation's gun laws when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. After Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after Charleston, after Orlando, after Las Vegas, after Parkland, nothing has been done. This time that can't be true. President Biden on Thursday pleading with Congress to do something about gun violence. We need to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. And if we can't ban assault weapons, then we should raise the age to purchase them from 18 to 21. Now, Mr. Biden spoke to the nation about something that is a uniquely American phenomenon, mass shootings, particularly in schools. This, of course, after the tragedies in Uvalde, Texas, as well as Tulsa and Buffalo that left dozens of men, women, and children dead. Will something be different this time around? Well, joining us now, Mike DeBonis, congressional reporter for the Washington Post. And, well, on Capitol Hill, the bipartisan talks have begun, but are they really expected to go anywhere? For now, uh, they're going somewhere. We don't know where exactly they're going. I think what's uh, clear now uh, after the president's speech is that the things that he described, an assault weapons ban, ban on high capacity magazines, perhaps raising the age for the purchase of assault weapons, uh, none of those things are really seem to be in the wheelhouse of what these talks in the Senate are likely to consider. What they're talking about is going to be much more modest, uh, small expansions of background checks, Uh, Probably the most substantial piece will be around so-called red flag laws that would allow authorities to uh, petition to keep guns out of the hands of mentally disturbed people. It's those sorts of things where there's likely to be some sort of bipartisan compromise. It's not the things that the president was talking about Thursday night. Well, let's talk about those red flag laws where you say there might be some bipartisan agreement. We have those here in Washington state. As you say, they allow authorities to take the guns from someone who is deemed mentally unstable or a threat to the community. Obviously, you have to go through the courts. You have due process and all of that. But this is something that Texas law does not have. Would it have prevented that shooting in Uvalde? That's not entirely clear, and that's a complicating factor here for trying to get legislation because Republicans have said they want whatever is done to narrowly fit the, the, folk, the, the circumstances of these cases. But we don't know the full facts. Uh, the perpetrator in Uvalde may have had a juvenile record. Those records are sealed under law. There's some effort right now to find out exactly what was known about his behavior. We do know from uh, acquaintances, friends, people in the community that there were concerns about him, that uh, he had harassed uh, girls in his class, that he had engaged in some abusive behavior online. It doesn't appear that that was reported to authorities as a potential threat, but there could be things, and again, in his juvenile justice record that might indicate that there were red flags that were not heeded. He obviously was able to go into a gun store and buy these these weapons uh, at the age of 18. I think that that's part of why the, the president was talking about raising the age is that 
We have seen several instances where there's been shooters age 18, 19, who have been able to basically walk in after their birthdays, 18th birthdays, and buy these weapons. What about raising that age to buy the weapons? You mentioned the age of of this particular shooter. Why is that not expected to go anywhere in Congress? Well, you know, I've talked to several Republican lawmakers about this. A lot of them uh, simply raise the point, listen, we, we send you know, young men to war at 18, you can register for the military at 18, you can do any host of other things. We don't believe you should abridge someone's constitutional right based on, you know, age 21. That's a common argument that I hear. It's actually being litigated in the federal courts right now. The the state of Florida instituted just that kind of ban after the Parkland uh, shootings, and, and the NRA went to court to challenge it. It's being challenged in Florida right now. There was a challenge to the California's ban that was actually sustained by a panel of the Ninth Circuit earlier this year. So the, the courts are beginning to speak on this, and it may very well be that the Supreme Court ultimately finds it unconstitutional in the in the coming years. We heard a lot of arguments about that in the House Judiciary Committee as they took up legislation that included just such a ban. But it's not settled. It's not settled law. It could happen, but there is Republican opposition to it. And speaking of Republican opposition at the center of these talks, John Cornyn of Texas, he is known as a gun rights supporter. Yes, he is. Uh, and, you know, he's uh, he's been A-rated by the NRA his entire career. He's carried some of the NRA's highest priority legislation national concealed carry reciprocity. He has been involved in these negotiations before, and they very rarely have borne fruit. Only once, actually, has a deal that he's been involved in come through, and that was a very modest expansion of background checks, a bill that was uh, basically encouraged federal agencies and military branches to share additional information that in background checks But he's been saying that he believes this time is different. There is a bipartisan desire to do something. Uh, And, you know, the outlines that he has sketched out are are kind of what I described, a modest expansion of background checks, perhaps to include juvenile records, perhaps some sort of national red flag statute that may simply just encourage states to set up their own laws. And then things around school security and mental health, mental health funding, things like that. That's where he thinks the sweet spot is. You know, the Democrats, Chris Murphy, the lead Democrat in the talks is indicating the same things. And we're going to see over the next few days, you know, exactly what can come together. Mental health, as you mentioned, is always something that Republicans bring up when the issue of gun control is a hotly debated topic. What exactly do they want? Because they say they want more mental health treatment or mental health solutions. But what does that mean? Well, it's not precise. I think when Republicans say mental health, some interpret that to include red flag laws or some encouragement for states to establish red flag laws. I think that there is a good deal of desire among uh, Republicans to you know, increase the capacity at the state and local level to handle people who are found to be in crisis. That's been a tough lift at the federal level previously. Funding is always a question. Republicans have always opposed new federal funding for programs, especially when it isn't offset by taking the money from some other program. So it's going to be hugely challenging to do that. And we're going to see if they've been able to identify anything that could possibly work. So finally, why this time around are people a little more optimistic than, say, after Sandy Hook? Well, you know, listen, this happened in a Republican state with two Republican senators. One of them is now uh, very much involved in negotiations. Democrats, at least Chris Murphy, the, you know, the lead Democrat, 
this, this sort of saying like, you know, the most important thing here is not to solve every problem is to do something, even if we're just around the edges of the, the matter and we're not getting at some of these more thoroughgoing measures, we need to do something. And I think that that attitude of even if it's fairly minimal, even if it's not everything that we want, we need to do something. I think that that attitude is probably what's going to end up driving some sort of solution here. But if it's really, really, you know, minimal, Democrats have sort of suggested it, it, it's not worthwhile. We're ready to just do sort of a political showboat and show that there is Republican opposition to doing things like assault weapon bans and high capacity magazine bans and all of that. All of that in an election year, no less. Mike DeBonis, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Still to come, it's not just the U.S. Other countries are looking at changing their own gun laws in the wake of the Texas school massacre. When the Northwest political continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. While talks on gun control are unlikely to result in major changes in U.S. law, other countries seem determined to act. Here's Elisa Jaffe. Canada's leaders are proposing sweeping new gun laws in response to mass shootings in our country. We need only look south of the border to know that if we do not take action firmly and rapidly, it gets worse and worse and more difficult to counter. That's Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. ABC's Alex Stone joining us with what the Prime Minister is proposing, Alex. Yeah, and Elisa, this is a firing up debate in the U.S. Democrats are saying Justin Trudeau doing what needs to be done here. They say that as a leader. Republicans are saying, yeah, yeah, right, good luck with that, that nothing like that will ever be allowed in the U.S. And they're saying he's a liberal leader who doesn't get it. So really, this is firing it up. But the announcement coming from the Canadian federal government watching what has been unfolding in the U.S. and the bill that Trudeau is introducing would ban any sales or transfers of handguns at all from moving forward in Canada. Gun licenses would be taken away from domestic violence and stalking suspects. There would be new red flag laws that would go into place for those who courts rule are a danger to, to own a gun. And long gun magazines would be limited to a max of five rounds, no more than that. And more of what he said, uh, this is his announcement. As of the passage of this legislation, it will be illegal to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. Now, he says uh, that will begin the process of trying to make a dent in street crimes in the cities in Canada and then the other measures for mass shootings. Two years ago, the Canadians passed an assault weapons ban on 1,500 types of guns, including the AR-15. And so based on that, his team says by the end of the year, no matter what happens with this new legislation, that what they call the military-style assault weapons, that they will either have to be turned over to the government, turned in, and likely going to get, it'll be a buyback where owners get money or gift cards for them, or they have to be permanently disabled, that Canadians will not be allowed to own those any longer. In the situations where someone chooses to keep that weapon, it needs to be permanently and irrevocably disabled by the government or by experts to make sure that it could never again be used 
as a firearm. And he says that part is good to go uh, as part of the the law outlawing uh, the uh, long guns two years ago, some of the long guns. But there are about 55,000 new handguns registered annually in Canada. There would be a freeze on that. And, Elisa, the, the deadliest mass shooting in Canadian history was two years ago. Nova Scotia, 22 were killed. Then Canada passed the assault weapons ban. We'll see where this goes. They don't have the NRA to contend with. They have a very different constitution. And then you've got Mexico, where it's very hard to buy a gun legally in Mexico for citizens. And Mexico is saying, U.S., you are our problem. That It has been well documented over many years that most of the illegal guns in Mexico used by the drug cartels and criminals, that they are illegally imported from the U.S. So Mexico is saying as well, U.S., we need you to do something that you've got your problems, but also it's fueling the, the crime in Mexico. They're calling on the Biden administration to step up border checkpoints, not for people flowing into the U.S., but for guns Im- illegally going into Mexico that are bought or stolen in the U.S. So both countries on our borders are saying enough. They want changes in Canada now making these announcements. ABC's Alex Stone. Thank you, Alex. You got it. Thanks, Lisa. We have to take another break, but still to come, a trip across the pond as a world leader celebrates seven decades in power when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally this week, a trip across the pond to London, England, when Queen Elizabeth stepped onto the Buckingham Palace balcony on Thursday. Her appearance drew wild cheers from the tens of thousands who came to join her at the start of four days of celebrations of her 70 years on the throne. Joining us now is Tom Rivers, ABC News correspondent from London, but doesn't seem like the Queen feeling all that great. Yeah, well, again, we've kind of seen this, Jeff, over the past few months. She's really cutting back on some of her duties. She reported on day one some uh, discomfort after a a very, very intense, busy day. So uh, she's been taking a break from some of the events and deputizing. For instance, Prince Charles uh, took her place at the service of Thanksgiving in St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, And that was the first opportunity we really had to see uh, the reaction amongst uh, Harry and Meghan with the other royals in a public event. And uh, it was kind of interesting in that sermon delivered by the Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, she's been a horse racing fan. She's had many, many horses over the decades. And he said, yes, I know you're watching uh, this event today um, from a TV set in Windsor Castle. But he said, it's great to know that you're still in the saddle and long may you reign. And I think a lot of people, young and old, certainly would agree with that theme, certainly here in the UK. 70 years, that's really kind of unprecedented for a monarch. It certainly is. Um, They've never in the long, long lineage of the monarchy here over the past thousand years or so, we've never had anyone last 70 years on the throne. So even if you're not a royal fan, the historical significance is lost on no one. Absolutely no one here. And guess what? In my lifetime, in your lifetime, we're not going to see another one trying to beat 70 years. So you, you mentioned the, the fans of, of the royal family. They certainly have a, a celebrity status in, in the U.K., but here in the United States, there's a lot of people that are still kind of befuddled as to why a monarch, obviously she's just a bit of a figurehead in, in the political sense, but why such this fascination with a royal family? Well, again, it is, it is what you're kind of, the people here, it's kind of what they're born into. 
Um, and there are debates that kind of raise themselves through the years. Should they have an elected head of state? Um, but because she goes back historically as a princess to the dark days of the Blitz, the dark days of World War II, time when, say, Buckingham Palace came under uh, fire and bombs from, uh, from Germany. And they, they relate to her. She was there, one with the people. So she kind of gets a pass in that whole, if you will, debate. But with uh, whenever the day comes when she goes and she's replaced by Charles, I think we're going to see more people saying, look, do we really want to carry on with this thing? Or should we shift gears and become a republic and have an elected head of state as you have in America? Um, that is going to be something that will be discussed somewhere down the road, but not today and not certainly in the in the days that she's still uh, doing her duty day in, day out as the queen. Well, certainly one thing she does for the United Kingdom, as opposed to really anyone here in the United States, is that she's a unifying figure. Yes, for the most part. You still have uh, a few voices out there that say, you know, I'd rather not have... Uh, a monarchy, but you know, for the most part, no, she's very unifying. And uh, again, some people make the argument, they say, yeah, the, the royal family is great because they bring in tourist dollars. Others say, well, how much of the taxpayer money has been uh, has been released for these four days of celebration? So it cuts both ways. And uh, again, I think, though, for the most part, people are saying, look, 70 years is a long time to be punching the clock. Let's celebrate with her this weekend over these four days. All right, Tom Rivers from ABC News in London. Thank you so much. Take care, Jeff. And that'll do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelip. Thank you for listening and have a good week.